time in the word this morning. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so very much for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for everything you've blessed us with in him. We just ask that as we open up your word and we think about the things that are found in your word, that your spirit would be illuminating our heart and causing us to see what we need to to repent, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, making us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we love you in your Son's name. Amen. So, when I was a little kid, I, I had some imaginary friends, but I, I didn't have any imaginary monsters, right? Some kids have imaginary monsters, like little things under the bed and stuff. I, I never had that. However, I will be honest, uh, there is a moment in my life now that I dread. So, I'm, I often study late, and it becomes dark. And walking through this building at night with no lights on is absolutely petrifying. And then when I leave the building and then walk from the door to the parsonage, this fat boy runs, right? Um, you have no idea how, how scared I, I become and how rattled it is until, until the motion light comes on. And I look around, and I realize, oh, there, there's nothing there. Why, why was I scared? I, I shouldn't be scared of the dark. But I, I did have this, one time I did have this, this thought, what happens if the light comes on and the very thing I'm scared of is there? What happens if I'm scared of it, and it is far worse than I could have ever imagined? Now, the past couple years... Um, as I think about the church, and I think about some of the things that are happening in the church, uh, and, and, I, and I hear about books that are being published, and I, I listen to professional professors as they talk to their seminary classes, and there's conferences going on, and I, and I, I, I hear these, these rumors of these things happening, and there's this fear inside of my heart uh, that there is very much, uh, there's a lot of toxic theology out there that are it's drawing people away from the word, drawing people away from Christ. In one sense, in the past couple months, it is, is as if the motion light has come on, that very thing that I've heard rumors of that I said, oh, please, may it be, may it be far more rumor than it is actually what I think is happening and here to come find out, I think the thing is far uglier and devastating than I could imagine. It seems like leaps and bounds, there are many who go to church and claim to be followers of Christ, and yet they are leaving the word and leaving Christ in breakneck speed. And it really breaks my heart to think about some good schools, some good publishing companies, even some good churches who have deserted the word. And I know that the temptation is real. I know it's a real temptation. Any one of us could succumb to that temptation. No one in this room is strong enough to fight that temptation. It is only a work of God and strengthening of his word and of his spirit that keeps us close to his word. But this morning, I I still want to encourage you and I want to warn you, what happens when a group of believers walk away from the word and walk away from Christ? What happens 
What, what's, what, what, what type of things should we expect to see? If we succumb to that temptation, what will happen in our life? This morning in Proverbs 14, verses 12 through 16, we're going to see what happens when someone walks away from the word, walks away from the Lord. Five verses, each verse has its own point. So this morning, there's going to be five points. There's five things that I want to show you is going to happen when we walk away from the Lord and we walk away from his word. The first is that we become our own judge. We, we, we judge ourselves. We become self-judges. That's not a good thing, by the way. Second thing, we become a pretender. We start to pretend. I'll explain what I mean when we get there. Third, we become a backslider. Fourth, we become incredibly gullible. And fifthly, we become careless. So, I, I want to show you this. So first, first thing that happens when we abandon the word, we abandon Christ, we become a judge. We become judges of ourselves. Notice verse 12 of Proverbs 14. It says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, in my estimation, when I look at this text, I think that there is a connection between verses 12, verse 13, and 14. And that there's a sense that this man who, he thinks about his way, and it seems right to him, since it ends in death, this is not somebody who is seriously taking God's word, who has discernment, looks at the path in front of him, and through discernment and through scripture, makes a, makes a judgment, makes a call, lives that out, and is living without a guilty conscience, saying, I'm doing what the Lord asked me. That's not what's being talked about here. What's, talked, what's being talked about is a person who no longer looks or has never looked at the word of God. They are looking at their life, right? There's a way they're looking at their life. They're looking at the way that they live their life, their lifestyle. Notice that it seems right to him. It doesn't say that it is right. It's rather that it seems right to him that when he looks at his lifestyle, he looks at his choices and his thoughts, he himself judges those thoughts as being right, okay? I think we could even say by implication, not only does he see his own way as being right, but then it's by his own perspective, his own thoughts, that he then begins to judge others, not off of some grand theory of objectivity, but rather from own personal perspective. So there's a way which seems right to him. It's not right to anybody else, but it's right to him. It's his own system of ethics. It's his own theology. But notice the way. The way, the, the end of this way is death. So he thinks he's right. He thinks he's right ethically. He thinks he's right with God. It seems right to him. But he doesn't consult God's word. And this way leads to death. Now, here in, in Proverbs, we would say, well, what is the meaning here of the word death? Is he talking about spiritual death? Is he talking about physical death? Is he talking about just deadly actions that are hurting other people? And I would say, yes, it is all the above, right? It is all of the above. There is a way to this man, the way that he thinks, that is right. And if he's not consulting God, then most definitely there is some aspect of spiritual death. And there's most definitely will lead to death, uh, the second death, after, after he dies. He'll be separated from God from all eternity. 
Could some of his ways even lead to death? Of course. He thinks he's right. He doesn't listen to advice. People say, I wouldn't do that. He goes, I'm right. But the question is, is this only talking about non-believers? Like, is there ever a case where a believer could not listen to God's word and abandon Christ and start having his own thoughts and start thinking this is the right way because of his own perspective or because of his tradition or because of his church friends and that actually doesn't take him closer to the Lord, but it actually leads him away from the Lord. Is this, is this possible? Could a believer do this? Uh, yeah. This happens all the time. This happens in our life all the time. We don't like to admit that it happens, but it happens. Every time we sin, in a sense, that's essentially what we're doing, right? Every time that we're sinning, we're saying, I'm going my own way, opposed to the way that the Lord wants me to go. And how many of us, when we do a sin, do we go, you know what, this is about ready to be really bad, I'm definitely in the wrong when I do this, but I'm still going to do this. How many times do we justify our actions saying this is the right action and it's not the right action? Is it possible for a believer to be in the habit of doing that? And when it comes time for major decisions, never consults the word, never consults the Lord, makes decisions purely on the basis of his own perspective and continually does that to the point where it damages his relationship with the Lord? Of course. This happens all the time. And friends, when we become our own judge based off of our own perspective and we judge what we're doing based off of ourselves, that is a very dangerous proposition. We should never be in this position as believers. As believers, we should be constantly going back to his word Constantly going back to Christ, never leaving these things. This, this is the way that seems right. This is the way that is right, the word. Who are we to even have some sort of ethical standard that we could judge ourselves and our own actions based off of our own standard of right and wrong? It's easy to manipulate. This is the first thing that happens when you leave the word of God. You become your own judge. Now, at the beginning of this, you might say, ah, who cares? That, it seems like a very small thing, right? A very small concession. But I want you to notice, as we go throughout this text, there are more and more things. Once you adopt this idea that my mind is the mind that is the arbitrator in all things, my reason, my intellect, and my perspective is the judge and the arbiter, there are, there are numerous steps that you will take that will lead you to complete chaos and destruction. Now notice what happens next in verse 13. Now in my mind, I see a connection here, a connection between verses 13 and 12. I don't think 13 is by itself. It says, even in laughter, even in laughter, the, the heart may be in pain, and in the end of joy may be grief. Now it is true that it's possible for any one of us to laugh and our heart really be in a lot of pain, right? That's, that's an obvious thing. That's possible. We talked about that last week. We really don't know what's inside of a, of a human heart, and there, there are numerous things that are secret to, to each person that no one will ever know. That's true. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. And notice in verse 12, the end of, or in verse 13, the end of joy may be grief, kind of, kind of like the idea of laugh now, cry later, Right? You might be joyful now, but it might end in total grief and misery. Well, when you take this in light of verse 12, when it says, and the way is, 
this, the end of this is the way of death, it is possible that somebody, in verse 13, they are on this path that's going to its end. While they're going, while they're their own judge, they appear on the outside to be joyful. They're laughing and joyful now. They say, I got full fulfillment in this. This is great. And two things are possible. One, it is possible that they are pretending. Deep down, they are not all right. They understand exactly what's going on. They've walked away from the Lord, and there's chaos, and there's hurt, and there's all these bad attitudes, right? This is what begins to happen. You start to lie to yourself. If you are your own judge, and everything you do is right, it's an easy thing to lie to yourself and to say, I'm happy, when actually you're not happy. Or it's very possible for somebody to to really be enthralled in what they're doing, to be so convinced that they're right, and at the end, when they get to the end and they realize that this is death, there's a lot of grief. Now, anyone who has ever walked away from the Lord for any period of time, and you've just think about that process of sin and when you were, there was an extended period of time of not being obedient. How many of you could actually identify with verse 13, where on the outside you laugh and you go, everything is great. Everything is, and on the inside, you're going, there are emergency bells going off. There's SOS signals going off. You know everything is not okay. It's not okay. On the outside, it looks okay, but on the inside, you go, it, it is, it's bad in here. There might be moments of laughter, but you know, you know what's happening. As a believer, I think this is also possible, that you can become a pretender. You can portray something on the outside that's not really there. And you can lie to others, but ultimately, you know the truth, that there's, no, that there's only pain from walking away from the Lord. So you become a pretender. Now, some of you go, so what? That still sounds like a personal decision. It still doesn't sound all that bad. Well, then notice to the next one. Verse 14. It says, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own way, but a good man will be satisfied with his so interestingly here in verse 14, it, notice what Solomon says. It says, the backslider in heart. The word for backsliding here is the idea of turning around, going the other way. So it's like the opposite of repentance, right? Repentance is realizing that I'm doing something wrong and then reconciling and going back and doing the right thing. Backsliding is the opposite. I'm doing something, right? I'm kind of on a path, and then I go, you know what? I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go back into sin. That, that's, that's the heart, right? The idea is faithlessness, not really trusting. So notice that this person is a backslider, not in action, but a backslider in heart. It means that their heart is faithless. Their heart does not trust the Lord. So this is the idea. What happens when a person walks away from the Lord? Really what's ended up happening is they're turning their back, and this is a heart issue, Right? Now, the next part of this is a little difficult to understand. It says, a, black, a backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. The question is, what does he mean? Well, if we look to the next part of the verse, it kind of helps us. At least in the New American Standard, it adds a word to help us get the sense. But a good man will be satisfied with his. So the idea here is, is that a backslider in heart is filled with his own lifestyle. He has to live with all of the consequences of his sin. He has to live with all of the ideas of his bad theology. He has to live with all of this. And there's even a sense that he is trying to satisfy 
his heart. He's trying to satisfy those those things that we seek to satisfy by his own way, by his own thinking. There's a sense that he's trying to be complete in this. It's almost as if, it's almost as if his new identity of, of thinking of his own way and living in his own perspective becomes his sole identity in which the only way that he can be happy is living out this new identity that he has for himself. It is all. It is everything he wants. Everything he wants, that is how he identifies himself, and that is how he thinks he's going to be satisfied. So he goes after it more and more and more. The implication, by the way, is that he will not be satisfied by this. His whole life is just filled with his sin, filled with this walking away from the Lord. But notice the next part, but a good man will be satisfied with his. Now, this is the opposite, right? This is the first time that we have in this section, and this section of Proverbs is a, is, is a kind of a compare and contrast between the foolish and the wise. And so here we actually have the The contrast, right, in verse 14. So that's why I say verse 12, 13, and 14 are a connection. That's where the the contrast comes in. So a good man will be satisfied with his. Satisfied with, with what? His what? Well, if it's the opposite of the fool, then let's go back up to verse 12. So a good man would be the opposite. So to a foolish man, his way seems right to himself. A wise man... There's a way that is right to God. You see, he goes to the scriptures. There's a way that seems right to God. That's, 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 the, that's the opinion that should matter, God's opinion. That way does not end in death, but that way ends in life. And if it's the opposite, verse 13 could say, even in pain, the heart may be joyful. You see that? That's what a good man has. He has that joy. And we could even say, the, the end of his grief may be joyful. That's what a good man has. He has this joy. Now, the question is, what is joy? We've talked about joy, but it's always good to remind ourselves that joy is not just this attitude of laughing hysterically at everything and just always being happy. That's not joy. Joy is actually a synonym of contentment. And biblically, A joyful person is a person who's content in the person of Christ. I realize who Christ is and what Christ has given me, and I'm content in that. I don't need anything more, and I don't need anything less. I have Christ. Christ is enough. And true joy, rejoicing, comes from the sense of, I have Jesus, and he is enough for me. I don't need anything else. Isn't that great? That's the sense of rejoicing. Ultimately, I guess we could say, why do people walk away from Christ and from the word? It's because they fail to see the sufficiency of Christ and his word. There's always something better, right? There's always something better on the other side. There's a, the grass is always greener on the other side. That, that forbidden fruit always looks tastier than the fruit that we have. You want to know where the real spiritual warfare is of our time? You want to know where Satan is spending most of his mind attacking the mind and hearts of the believer? It is in trying to devalue Christ. It is trying to offer us substitutes. 
It is trying to get us to think in our mind that Jesus is not enough, that the word is not enough. It's Jesus plus. It's the word plus. The more that we, we, we get to know the God of the, the, the Bible, the more we realize how sufficient he is. This isn't some sort of platitude. This is true. He, he is truly the only one that can satisfy me on every level. He is truly the only one that I can be so enthralled with that I could contemplate him forever and still be enthralled and still amazed with him. It's when I say, well, I need the word plus something. I need the word plus someone else. That's when we start to get in trouble and we start to go the other way. Notice that a good man, a, a, a man who understands who's humble, who knows God, realizes that God is sufficient and the word is sufficient. I don't need to go anywhere else. I have it here. Why, why do I have to be okay with a substitute, right? Why do, I have to, why do I have to go to Burger King and look at the impossible Whopper and say, that's a real Whopper? I don't have to. I could get the real thing. And I have that in Christ. I have that in the word. But our mind is tricky. Sin is, is deceitful. Our, our enemy knows, knows that when we start to, to supplement our Savior and his word with other things, that we begin to go astray. This is why the good man has joy, because his joy is rooted in a real thing that can offer real contentment and real joy. This is why the foolish man is not content. This is why the, the, back, the, the, the back slider is not satisfied in his own ways because the things that he's pursuing cannot satisfy. Now notice the next verse. (laughs) Kind of an interesting statement here. Verse 15. The naive believe everything, but the sensible man considers his ways First of all, uh, you know, in our culture today, is it not the premium to say that an open-minded person is the best kind of person, right? The person who is open-minded and listens to a lot of ideas. That's the, that's the type of people we should, we should strive for. Here, Solomon says the open-minded person believes everything. Now, I don't, think, I don't think here he's talking about listening to new ideas about how to, how to do things. I think what, what Solomon is concerned about is ethical issues and theological issues so when he's talking about somebody who's naive it's somebody sorry uh it's somebody who is gullible it is somebody who listens to everything except god's word that that's the sense here of an open-minded person it's the idea that they will accept anything and it doesn't matter they'll accept anything as long as it doesn't coincide with god's word but they will accept everything that coincides with their own perspective, right? If it agrees with their perspective, they accept it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's logically inconsistent. It doesn't matter if it's theologically incorrect. If it, goes, if, if it matches with that base idea that everything I do is right, then they'll accept it. I suppose we could spend the next 15 minutes talking about a culture that is incredibly gullible. 
We could talk about a church that's incredibly gullible. I've heard stories of things that are happening in churches all around the world and things that are taught in churches all around the world that would leave your jaw on the floor, left my jaw on the floor. And when you think you've heard everything preached inside of the church, you then hear something new and you're like, who, what, how, how could anyone sit there and listen to that? One is so striking, I have to, I have to talk about it. Because, because I, think, I think it demonstrates what happens. How far can we go when we leave the word? There, there's, a, there's a church in South Africa. There's a, there's, a, there's a man who calls himself a pastor. And he goes to a thing on Sunday that people call a church. I, I hardly consider him a pastor, nor do they go to church. But he, he stood up one ser- sermon and he said, If I am the shepherd, what does that make you? Sheep. What does sheep eat? And everybody said, grass. And he said, Go out and eat grass. And he forced his congregants to go outside and eat grass. While they're eating grass, he is walking on their backs so that he does not touch the grass because a shepherd does not touch the grass nor eat the grass. And you go, who would do that? And people are running over each other to go outside and eat grass and have this guy walk all over them. How do people get that gullible? You get that gullible when you forsake Christ and the word. We think of that being crazy, but I want us to remember, we could be there too if we leave Christ. If we leave the word, we can believe insane, crazy, theological ideas. We are no better than they. So a a, a naive person believes everything. But notice the next part, but a sensible man considers his steps. A sensible man thinks about, what he's about where he's about ready to step. A sensible man, according to the book of Proverbs that we're learning, already has the fear of the Lord. He, he already has this concept of right and wrong from God's word. It comes from his law. He, 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 he's, a, he's a person full of scripture. And so when he makes his decision, this is the humble, this is the humble bowing of the heart saying, God, you are right. Your way is right. I'm going to do your way. And then as he then scrutinizes his path, it's not through what is right to me, but it's what is right to God. In fact, we could say that a wise man is a man who believes the word and is skeptical about everything else. I think that's a pretty good principle that wisdom here is, is believing the word and being skeptical of everything else. I was thinking about this morning as I was looking over my notes, and uh, I, had to, I had to change some of the, the things in my notes. And I thought, isn't that interesting that even on this text, talking about a man who's sensible, uh, going back to God's word, that I, I even had to change some of my wording to make sure that it was biblical according to God's word which then demonstrates this morning I disagreed with myself, I argued with myself, and I won. Right? So the sense is, I can't even trust myself. I can't trust my own mind. I can't trust what I said yesterday. I can't trust my own commentary that I wrote last night. The word is right, regardless of what I say about it. The word is right, regardless of my interpretations of it. The same is true for you as well. 
The word is right regardless of what you think about it or your interpretations of it. No human has the right to be put on par with Christ and his word. But it is easy. It is easy to put human authors and human thoughts on par with Christ and the word. Why? Because the enemy wants us to supplement Christ and the word with things from the outside. A sensible person understands that and goes, no, give me, give me the purest form. I, I want to go back to the source. I want to go back to the word. I want to go back to Christ. And I, and I want to shape my whole life based off of this. So notice what happens. Just notice, notice the downfall. So in verse 12, there's a guy who says, what's right is what I think is right, what I feel is right from my perspective. Seems like a small little concession. Then he goes, yeah, okay, I decided what was right. I might not have it fully together yet, but if I put on a brave face and I look like I'm right, then maybe somehow I'll be satisfied by it. Maybe I might have joy now, and maybe eventually I'll figure it out, right? I'm right, and, and it, I'm just going to force it to work. And so he starts to pretend. Seems like a, another little small concession. Then we see then in verse 14 that in his heart, he then tries to satisfy himself with his own ways, okay? Once again, seems like a very small concession. Then all of a sudden, now he starts to believe everything. He becomes gullible. Everything that coincides with his perspective, he's now starting to believe it, right? So now we can start to see how this is starting to come off the rails. Now notice the very last verse in verse 16 of the text this morning. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil. See, if wisdom, if wisdom is following God's word, if wisdom for us as believers is being Christ-like, then for us to do anything that is opposite of Christ, of who he is, of his will, that is evil for us. And if we're wise living a Christ-like life, we would go, I don't want to do that very thing that's opposite of the one whom I love, my Savior. That's what a wise person does. Now, we don't always do this perfectly, but that's the principle, right? I, I want to be like Jesus, and to be like Jesus, I don't, that means I'm, I'm not going to do things that are against the character and will of Jesus. So therefore, I'm going to be very cautious how I step. I'm going to consult him. A fool, on the other hand, notice how he sums this up perfectly, but a fool is arrogant. Now, arrogance is this idea of inflating oneself without due cause. I'm the best. I don't have to prove to you I'm the best. I'm just the best. That's what being arrogant is, right? In, in the Bible, pride has the sense of, I'm the best, look at what I've done that demonstrates I'm the best. Arrogance is, I'm the best because, look at me, I am. That's what arrogance is. And so the fool says here, I'm the best. All my ways are right. I haven't convinced myself that I'm wrong yet, and I'm the best debater I know. Right? That's what a fool would say. He's arrogant. So you see that arrogance, how that arrogance clouds his judgment. And, and, and what, what a small concession in the beginning becomes to this train going off the rails. He's arrogant. And then notice the next statement. He's careless. And the idea of careless is to act in a, in a way without concern for the consequences. This man does not care about the consequences. A fool doesn't care. I'm going to do what I want, when I want it, and don't try to convince me I'm wrong because I'm right. That's what a fool is. 
Think about how careless he is. I'm going to do whatever I want. Off the rails. I'm going to do what, I, I don't care what happens. I don't care about the consequences. I'm concerned about how I feel and, and, and what's right right now. A godly person says, no, we got to be like Christ. Uh, a fool says, I want to do what's right for me right now. And he's careless. No, no regard for others, no regard for God, no regard for theology, no regard for his future. Becomes a careless individual. So he's off the rails. He's sinning and, and with no regard. I thought about this this morning, and I thought about this idea of acting carelessly and arrogant. And I thought, could a believer ever get to this point? Is it possible for a believer to get to this point? And uh, I, I, I thought, yeah, of course. There's an entire book of the Bible about a group of believers that got to this point. The book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a church that had some pretty, pretty rank things to the point that Paul goes, what are you guys doing? The world doesn't even do some of that stuff. They're careless. They're gullible. They're arrogant. And the question is, how did they get there? They got there because they left the Savior. They left the Word. And what was Paul's, what was Paul's admonition to them in the, throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians? It's all about Christ, right? I mean, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is, this is seen right at the very beginning. He points out the problem. He diagnoses it correctly. Just notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and of the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas. And then here's my favorite group, because I don't think he would ever go after a group that says, I'm of Christ. So clearly this is, a, this is a, an arrogant stance to, that they have their own ideas, and then they just attribute their ideas to Christ. So they say, I am of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also some of the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see his argument. He says, all you guys are arguing about whose team you're on. There is no teams in Christ. We're all in Christ. And he says, I'm really happy that I wasn't the one that baptized some of you so that you could claim I was baptized by Paul, therefore I'm somehow better. And he says, does Christ have division? Is Paul the one that died on the cross for your sins? Of course not. God, he didn't send me to baptize, to have people in my name. He came to, he called me to come and preach the gospel. And then notice what he says next in verse 18, for the, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's absolute foolishness. But to us, it's the power of God. 
And then notice in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see it? This whole wisdom of I'm right, I'm clever, based off of my own perspective. Paul challenges the world and says, I challenge you, world. Where are you that could stand up to the wisdom of God? Where are you? No one could stand. And then notice what he says in verse 21. For since, the wisdom of God, or, or, for since in the wisdom of God, since the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now that is an incredible statement in the context. Remember, the context of these people are arguing who's better. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. It's about Christ. It's about the preaching of Christ. Who cares what Apollos says? Who cares what Paul says? Who cares what Peter says? Who cares? It's about Christ. That's the point. He then goes on. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. You see his argument? It is Christ. He diagnoses it at the beginning. They, they are supplementing Christ and his word with these other thoughts of wisdom. And it leads to these terrible things. So can it happen to us? Of course it can happen to us. Of course it's possible for us to find supplemental information about Christ and supplemental information and add that to our thinking about theology and Jesus. And as we add in those things and as we say, well, that seems right to my intellect and right to my reason, of course it devalues Christ. It devalues his word. It goes into a life of joylessness. Of course it goes into craziness, of arrogance, of me thinking that I'm right, I'm the best. And if you don't agree with me, then you're not right at all. Of course it goes there. Of course it goes then when I start to sin, I justify my sin because I'm arrogantly already assuming that I'm right. Of course it can go there. And it has gone there. So I plead. My heart pleads to myself and to everyone that hears my voice that we hold on to the cross and we hold on to the word. It ain't getting easier. The temptations are growing by the moment. It's turning into darkness, right? So what do we do? What's the grand strategy? Hold on. Go back to the word. Go back to Christ. That's it. Don't walk away. Please do not walk away. The, the effects are devastating. Not only to yourself and to your soul, but to those around you. Stick with Christ. You hear something from a preacher that isn't necessarily biblically coherent. You then find out what? It leads us away from Christ. You don't need him. You have Christ. You have the word. We don't have to be the newing, cutting-edge church. We have Christ. That's enough. We have the word. That's enough. So my admonition and my advice is stick with Christ. Stick with the word. 
and don't leave him. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. May the Lord give us the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Father, uh, as we come to this, this subject of, of our own backsliding and apostasy and of, the, of our own sinfulness, we ask that you would help us tremendously to stay true to your word, to stay true to your son. Help us, help us not adopt this idea that our, our own perspectives and our own thoughts are right, but, but that we're not really taught and we're not right unless we're right with you and following your word. Father, I pray for everyone here, and I pray that as we go out into the world and as we struggle and as we fight temptation, that we would stand firm, stand firm against those temptations, and that we would find our satisfaction, our joy, our contentment in Christ and in your word. Help us fight against the, the supplemental information of all these other thoughts. I so very much thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit who moves in our heart. We just ask for your blessings on the rest of the day that you would be honored and glorified. And we say this in your son's name. Amen.